Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today, we're talking to Mike Evans, who created a billion-dollar startup and then sold it and went for an epic trans-American bike ride. November 1st sees the release of his memoir called Hangry, which will be available on Amazon. And I'm excited to hear more about his story. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So you're an incredibly successful founder, a multi-billion dollar tech startup. Uh, But when you finally sold Grubhub, you didn't retire to an island or a chateau like most people people would. Uh, You embarked on a massive self-supported bike ride. Like, why that journey? Well, first of all, the the Trans Am bike ride was like a bucket list for me for a while. But it was so nice to just be able to take everything that I had learned, everything that I had done, and take a few months to reflect on it. Also, the process of going through an IPO and of creating a big tech startup like that um, leaves you, it's like, it's not the real world in a lot of ways. Like it's investment bankers and crazy dinners and private jets and all this craziness. And it's like, it, it would be easy by default to sort of just continue on that path and continue to live in that in that world that's that's just not real in a lot of ways. Um, and what I mean by that is the relationships that you develop aren't very deep. Um, there's really no connection to nature. And uh, and so leaving all of that behind and making such a dramatically different choice was a very intentional thing that I did. Did you feel that wasn't like an authentic like a lifestyle for you? Because I know some people love that, that lifestyle. They love the kind of startup tech company glitz and glamour. Was that just not not the right fit for you or you know not authentic for you? I like startups. I like the part of startups where you're creating something from nothing and you're inventing and creating, um, you know, creating new things. That's fun. The The world of a startup, when it becomes very successful, becomes a lot more about the financial return and about the finances. And it was that world that was didn't resonate with me as much. And certainly, I mean, it was nice. It was a great experience to go through once. I would never do it again. But uh, I have started another startup. And so I'm, I am going through the startup world again. And I find that to be a very fulfilling um, thing to do. I do take a lot more time to like spend in the mountains and really doing more adventure oriented things than I would have the first time around, for sure. And you mentioned the Trans Am was like a bucket list trip. So like when, when did you know that you were going to do this, you know, that you were going to just go off on a bike and when did you know it was going to be Trans Am? Because I did something similar earlier in my career and it's, I read a book, I went to a bookstore and saw a book and then I hiked across the Pyrenees for two months and then went over to the Alps and that book changed my life. It really changed your life. Like you, you're, that's what you do for work now. <laughs> well, I spent another 15 years, you know, building companies, but then I stumbled in, into this. <laughs> yeah. The moment that I knew I wanted to do the Trans Am, I was on a I was on a, a camping trip with my wife. We were camping at Jenny Lake in Grand Teton National Park uh, about, about, you know, in preparation for the next day doing a backpacking trip uh, for a week into the Bridger National Forest behind the Grand Tetons, to the west of the Grand Tetons. And um, I had always sort of played with the idea of doing the Appalachian Trail. At the time, I didn't even know the Pacific Coast Trail was a thing, uh, but the, you know, the AT was a thing I was going to do. Uh, someday, I sort of always had, that. I, not always, but I, that idea had been developing in my mind as I had gone on my first two backpacking trips in Glacier National Park in Grand Tetons. And I remember I was at Jenny Lake and it was it was like the weekend before Labor Day, the US holiday that like sort of marks the end of the summer. And like, it was like really, really hard to find a parking spot 
and then a camp spot at Jenny Lake. Like it was completely crowded. Like every spot was taken. Um, we had, you know, and you have to reserve the months in advance and everything. We had done that. There were lots of angry family, dads and moms and families who couldn't get a spot to camp for the night. And these, these two people rolled in on bikes and the, the camp host is like, oh yeah, you guys can just go set up right over there. And everybody's like, what the heck? How do they get a spot? And I wander over there and there's like a reserved section in like the nicest part of the campsite that's for bike packers. And I was like, what is bike packing? What is, what is this thing you're doing? And it, it's like backpacking. Uh, and I'll argue, but far superior to backpacking because instead of having all that shit on your back, you have it on the bike. And so it's like way easier on your shoulders. And so uh, this, the Grand Teton National Park is part of the Trans Am. Uh, it, it, the Trans Am goes right through it. And so, and Jenny Lake is on the, on the trail. And they're like, yeah, we started in Virginia and we rode like, we rode across the country. And it t- turns out that it takes three months, which is half the amount of time it takes for the Appalachian Trail. So it's much more accessible. And there are other couple advantages that immediately appealed to me as well. Uh, in addition to not having the stuff on my back, I've had all sorts of back issues in my life. And so like suddenly this was like, okay, I don't have to suffer through six months on the AT. I can cross the country using my bike, but there's other advantages too. One of which is, um, you know, you get that green tunnel effect in the AT where like, or backpacking in general, where you just sort of see the same thing. And it can be very freeing mentally, but also it can get a little dull after like a month. And so with the, with the Trans Am bike tour, like you're seeing constantly new things. And the, and the thing that you really see more than you see nature, there's quite a bit of nature, but the other thing that you really get out of it is you see people and a variety of people as you cross the country. And so it's a much more like, um, socially like engaged experience than a long haul backpacking trip, um, which I, which I really appreciated. Um, and then there's a final thing, which is you're, you're kind of never more than an hour and a half away from a restaurant. So like, instead of packing all your food with you, like I just stopped at a diner every morning and had like eggs and bacon and pancakes. <laughs> it was great. Uh, and so there's just logistically, I think it was easier than a, than a, than a bike, a backpacking trip. I still do backpacking. I still love it. Um, but for the long haul, it just was, it was really exciting to just do that, that whole experience and meet people in the country and see all these different places and go everywhere from, you know, the hot, sort of swampy areas in Virginia to the plains, to the mountains in Colorado, and then to the deserts in Oregon, and then the, and then the coast. So like the variety of things that I saw was just, just massive across the country. My co-host Karen is, is currently riding from Canada down to California on the Pacific coast and literally echoing the same things you said that, especially with the campsites, like the best campsites in every campground with like these beautiful ocean views are for bike packers only. And they're like the only ones there. And uh, it is a nice speed to see the world because you can kind of get, kind of get a bit of distance each day. Uh, one thing I think is really interesting is, is you mentioned uh, on your site that you've been trying to leave Grubhub for three years. And then all of a sudden one day it happened. And I think there's lots of people who, who feel like they're stuck in a rut and, you know, they have a bucket list of trips, but it's really hard to, to take that jump. You know, as a founder, you have this, you know, tremendous bond with Grubhub. It's like your baby, something you created and, and then you, you left it. Um, but, you know, why did you want to leave Grubhub? And then how, how did you actually make that step? Because I think that's really scary for a lot of people. There's sort of two sort of questions I want to answer in there. One of which is like, why did you leave this thing that was so successful? And then the other one is like, how do you get how do you get out of out of being stuck in a rut? So uh, there were, their answer is related. So the, the first one, why did I leave? I want to flip that on its head and say that, um, 
you should have a reason to stay at things. You should have a goal and it and it should be clear and there should be a reason to stay at a job, not a you don't need a reason to leave, you need a reason to stay. Um, and I th- and I really believe that that anything that takes that much of your energy and that much of your time and that much of your of your identity, um, you should have a reason to stay at those things. And that reason to some degree should be the work itself. Um, there are other reasons to stay, supporting a family, um, being able to keep insurance. Like there's a lot of reasons why you might stay at a job. But but ideally, if you're in the privileged position of being able to, to choose which work you want to do, you should stay at a work that you find fulfilling. And after going through the IPO, uh, I didn't I didn't the the goals that I had, which were um, helping independent restaurants, weren't in line with the. Um, this is kind of a harsh thing to say, but weren't in line with the with the what the public company, the public investors wanted for the company, which is to maximize profit. And so since those two goals diverged, there was no reason for me to stay there and then continue working towards someone else's goal. And so a lot of people are like, man, you were burnt out and you left. I'm like, I wasn't burnt out. I made a very conscious choice to stop applying my efforts towards a goal that I didn't want to accomplish. And so that's sort of the first answer about why I left. The second piece about, you know, how do you get out of being stuck in a rut? It's more nuanced. It's more complex because um, I did try to leave. I did want to leave about three years before I actually did. Uh, But in some ways, I was a little bit trapped by my own success in the sense that I had competing goals. There was a part of me that wanted to leave, but there was a part of me that wanted to stay all the way through the IPO. And there was a part of me that wanted to get the the accolades for that because everybody I've got some vanity just like everybody. Right. But also like it would open up. Uh, opportunities for whatever I wanted to do next in life after I finished the Trans Am. And so there was all these competing interests. And so when I say I wanted to leave, my whole self didn't want to leave. There was competing interests. And and it's very hard when there's this big part of ourselves that wants to leave a thing. Because that also means I want to leave it right now. I don't want to wait a year or two or three years. And, you know, combined with this sort of idea of carpe diem and like, you're not getting, and no one of us are getting any younger and, and, and who knows if you'll be physically able to do things in two years, you don't know what's coming in the future. Right. So for all those reasons, the idea of deferring that part of yourself that wants to go and like the mountains are calling and I must go, right. Like it's hard to say no to that person inside. Uh, just like say, wait, take all that mess that I just said. And, uh, and I had a plan, like there was like, I can stay, but I'm not staying indefinitely. I'm staying for a period of time or for an event. And I think it's worth recognizing that I would still love to go on a Trans Am bike trip, but uh, I have a six-year-old daughter and it would be very hard to take her on the trip and I don't want to spend the time away from her. And so I, again, have competing interests. Like at a time in my life, I could do that and take the three months, but I'm not there now. And the part of me that wants to go for a long bike ride is really freaking annoyed, right? <laughs> the part of me that wants to have a good relationship with my daughter is very fulfilled. So... Uh, again, th- like being stuck in a rut might actually just be competing interests, right? I, I haven't thought of it that way, but I think you're 100% on there. I've had a similar situation in my background. Um, and you mentioned carpe diem and this this desire to go and explore the world. And, and I think I read a book or I read somewhere years ago that you should think of how many, you know, chances you have to do something again in your life and think how many summers you have left to backpack and, you know, kind of map up what map out what you want to accomplish. And it, it seems like in, in your sense, you said, oh, how many more chances will I have to ride, you know, across America? You know, there may not be a lot if you're planning a family or, you know, as, as you get older. And, you know, in some cases, if you want to accomplish your bucket list items, you kind of have to make changes to other parts of your life to actually go do it. 
because otherwise you'll be, you know, 70 years old and you never rode across America. You never sailed the Atlantic. You never did all these things that were really important to you. Yeah. It's funny because I literally just sailed this Atlantic last, last November. I literally, just, that was like the next thing I did. Uh, that was actually the, the, the most recent adventure I did. Uh, and I'll have another one, right? Actually, so my, my wife just read the, so I, I wrote a book about founding Grubhub and then leaving and going on the spike trip. It's called Hangry and, uh, and it's coming out November 1st. And my wife just read it like last week. Like, you know, I've been writing it for two years and she finally, I finally gave her the copy. It was like, now you can read it. Now it's done. Because uh, I got the early copy like last week. And um, we had done some bike trips before. For our 20th anniversary, we did a bike trip across Austria. And uh, and after she, but she's like, I'm never doing a Trans Am. I'm never taking three months off to ride across the US. Like, it's just never going to happen. I'm not interested. And after she read my book, she's like, you know what? This actually sounds kind of fun. I'm like, yes, like, yes. So uh, I may have an opportunity sooner than I thought because we might we might pack up the kid for a summer and actually try it. Uh, I got a tandem and I've been I've been having my daughter ride on the back seat behind me. And so we may actually try and do a Trans Am with like an eight or nine year old. Um, we'll see. We had a podcast guest and they traveled the world, they did around the world with their daughters who were nine and 11 on bike. And I'm like, that was an incredible discussion here. These two, they're in uh, near Seattle. Just, you know, I thought I'd never, my kids are nine, 11 and seven. I'd never considered doing that. So it is possible to take these epic voyages with kids. Although uh, I don't know if I'm as brave, as brave as, as that couple were. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, about your, your trip. And the first thing is you wrote a recumbent. And I think a lot of people don't know this. You mentioned your back issues, but um, can you maybe just share the benefits of, a, of the recumbent as you see them? The reason I picked the recumbent, the back issues, they're minor. I was actually more worried about aggravating them, but I would have been able to get through it. Uh, the The reason I got the recumbent is because on a normal safety bike with the, the two triangle setup, you know, your your head is naturally like down about 10 degrees below level. And on a recumbent, the one, at least the one I picked, you know, your natural head position is exactly pointing towards the horizon. And this is it. I just wanted to see the country. I wanted to see everything that was around me without having to think about lifting my head up. And that was the entire reason behind getting the recumbent. Now, there was another benefit, which is all of my friends that I met on the trip were constantly complaining about their palms and wrists and backs and necks. Uh, and I was like, I'm just sitting on a lawn chair. I'm fine. <laughs> it's a little harder on my legs. I have to work a little bit harder, but like, actually, I'm spending less energy. Um, and it was worth it. You know, the I see on a lot of the like the Reddit bikes bike touring group, uh, the bike packing um, Reddit subreddit, and and some of the other groups that I've been on, including Crazy Guy on a Bike, which is a website that um, that a lot of bike tours bike tours use. A lot of people talk about the cost of the bike. Now I get I'm coming from a position of privilege. I had just done an IPO, I could buy whatever bike I wanted. That's right. So recognizing that that's true, I I still want to point out that. For just about everybody who does one of these long haul trips, the, the main cost is not the cost of the equipment. It's the cost of not earning revenue, like earning an income during those time during that time that they're away. And it is like always worth it to buy the good equipment uh, on one of these trips. And so um, recumbents tend to be a little bit pricier because they're a little bit less common. Uh, but there's used ones. And and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a great it was a great decision. I got some weird looks. For sure, as I was riding across the country, like, what's that thing? But I, it was it was totally worth it. I loved riding a, riding riding a bent across the country. 
Uh, I've never thought of just you know, looking up because you're right. On a long ride, I my head's down. I got to make sure I bring my head up because you're just, you know, that's the way your body goes and you, you miss a lot. You know, for people that don't know the Trans Am, what is the route? So it starts out in Virginia, um, near the coast at Yorktown. Uh, a lot of, about half of the riders I know actually started in Virginia Beach. So they start on the actual ocean instead of at Yorktown, uh, which is on Chesapeake Bay. And then, so that goes um, pretty much west and sort of meanders through Kentucky. And then um, I went a little bit in Tennessee, but some mo- the actual route doesn't. And then it goes just briefly through Illinois and then Missouri and then Kansas. And that's like, the Appalachians are, are quite steep. There's some steep hills in Missouri. And then you're on the plains for a thousand miles. And then you hit the, I hit the Rockies. And so at like you get to Pueblo and then suddenly it's like straight up, right? It's like three days. It's like three days, 9,000 miles, 9,000 feet of climb. It's crazy. It's like straight up. Uh, and then you end up in Breckenridge. You end up going all the way north to Missoula, almost to the Canadian border. Then you pitch back southwest towards Idaho and then west over to Oregon. Uh, or you do it in reverse. The actual maps and the actual official trail is west to east, um, but more people do it east to west. Uh, there's The prevailing winds um, are actually more from the north than they are from the west. And so you really don't end up um, having a lot of days with big headwinds. I had as many days with tailwinds as I had with headwinds. Um, and I just took shorter days when it was a headwind and a longer day in the saddle when it was a tailwind. So I could just make more distance. Uh, but that's the, that's the basic route. Um, it's about 4,600 miles in total. And so most people take around 80 to 90 days to do it. And then what type of roads, you know, that's always the question. Are you on interstates? Is it, you know, little tertiary, you know, roads where there's not a lot of traffic? It's like 10% bike trails, 10% highways, and then 80% really like sleepy roads. So even the sleepy roads sometimes have some some intense traffic. But for the most part, it's like you're going through small town America. You're away from the interstates. You're away from the highways. It's really quite relaxed. There, there certainly is times where it's, there's traffic and that can be a little stressful. There's one section in Wyoming um, where you ride for like one exit on the shoulder of an interstate and it's designated as a bike route because there's just, it's through the mountains. There's no other way to get around. I was like, oh, I'm making good time. I'm going to keep going. And then there was construction. And then I had to merge onto the actual interstate because it went down to one lane. And there was a truck behind me that laid on its horn. And I lost like five years off my life just from the terror of the whole experience. I don't recommend riding on the actual interstate. It is not fun. So that was a mistake. But I got through it, I guess. You're, you're here to tell the tale. You mentioned that this journey changed you. you and you want to book your blog posts from 2014. You said you changed emotionally. Uh, I wonder, you know, what was that change in here in 2022? Do you still feel that you're a different person because of doing that trip? Yeah, it's like um, I changed a lot and then I reverted mostly back to who I was. So on the trip, I changed quite a bit. Yeah, but there was some more durable changes that happened to me. The, the biggest one is I just got better at being present. I was very good at being present by the end of the trip. I was just in the moment, enjoying what I was doing, taking in what was around me, which is sort of like the euphoria and, and utopia of backpacking and hiking and kayaking and bikepacking and all of that stuff, right? But, um, and then I just got it because I practiced it a lot, I got better at it. And so I, and so that definitely toned down some of my impatience, helped me be less of an angry person. I still have a ton of road rage when I drive, which is why I really only bike. I just, I'm just not good in a car. 
but yeah, I, I got to be more patient. Another thing that happened is that the trajectory of going through an IPO and sort of acquiring wealth from results of a startup that would have changed me more if I hadn't so quickly tried to, you know, intentionally reverted back to activity, this huge activity and these activities that I enjoyed prior to any of that happening. And, and you mentioned you had three goals for the ride, reflection, grow and compassion, and experience the trip as it happens. It sounds like you were pretty successful. Like at the start of the trip, you, you were pretty successful in achieving those. Yeah, the first start, the first half of the trip was probably more about reflection. And the last half about half of the trip was more about taking the trip in as it went, you know, being present. Um, and then just the experience of seeing small town America and seeing some towns that were really on hard times and some that were thriving. Um, and this was sort of in, in the pre-Trump era. I, it just made it really clear to me how much small town America was like not doing well compared to the cities, which certainly increased my compassion without getting too much into politics. But like, that was the first sign that I had to like, oh, it's hard in middle America. Like I hadn't realized, I, I mean, I live in a city, right? Like I hadn't realized how hard it was for a lot of people. And so I think it definitely increased my compassion for the people who might not have jobs because of globalization or, um, or whatever, uh, that certainly did happen on the trip. And I didn't expect that. I, I expected to grow in compassion, but I didn't expect that it to be in that direction. We had one guest on and he was trying to promote bike touring to actually bring jobs and business back to rural America because a lot of these towns, you know, the interstate has bypassed them. And or I think he was in New Mexico or Colorado. And he said, there's a great loop that you'd hit all these kind of almost dead towns. And if they just turn that into like a national bike trail, you'd have all these people coming and bringing money into these small towns. Just, you know, it's a economic benefit as well as an ecological benefit just with bike touring versus driving around. And I never, I never thought actually, I hadn't realized just the issue of some of these small towns where even just having internet, like they don't, they're still using dial up internet in some cases. So uh, they really are, you know, isolated from kind of the rest of, you know, America, you know, big city society. In my, one of my sort of um, hopes for the book, well, it'd be great if it sold a million copies, right? <laughs> it would be great if it sold like wild, right? Because I imagine, you know, by Cheryl Stray, that, that book, it increased interest in the PCT, like the Pacific Coast Trail, by at least an order, two orders of magnitude, by hundredfold, uh, and um, and to the point where it's probably crowded now, right? <laughs> and my hope is that that actually happens at the Trans Am. It would be it would be beyond my wildest dreams if the book sold that much and actually just created interest in bike touring. That would be amazing. It is an amazing way to see the country. You're going at nine miles per hour, ten miles per hour. It's an, it's fast enough that things change, but slow enough that you t can take it all in. And then you went back to the startup game, you know, you're the founder of Fixer. Do you feel that the trip has changed how you are, how you are as a leader? You know, are you better? Or are you worse? Or are you just different? Yeah, I think that um, it certainly emphasized some, some things that were nascent uh, as a result of running Grow Hub. The, the biggest one is um, I do not need to be the smartest person in the room. It is great when you have coworkers who are good at what they do, you know, some, so, so, when I started Grubhub, you know, I was the software developer, I was the salesperson, I was the janitor, I did everything, right? Because it was just me. The second time around, um, I put a team together. And so I just rely on my coworkers a lot more. Um, they're empowered to do the work that they need to do. I don't like micromanage them. I hate the idea of micromanaging. And, and the result is that I have a lot more time to spend with my family and to spend on sort of these adventures that I love doing. And so, um, and so that it's just a more balanced approach than it was the first time around. Uh, and part of that's just, 
I don't need to control everything. Uh, and I think that that came out of the trip to some degree as well. I'm sure there's some listeners who are going to be, you know, dropping hints about the Trans Am bike trail to their boss, <laughs> hoping that they do the ride and <laughs> they come back, stop micromanaging and give them a little bit more freedom after this. I hope they do. I, you know, the Trans Am is uh, doing the whole thing seems hard, but doing the first day is not that hard. And then doing the second day after doing the first day is not that hard. Right. And it is really like a step after step. And, you know, by the time, by the time I got to a, a quarter of it was done, I was so strong compared to when I started. And I didn't, I didn't train that much before starting the trip. So my point is that boss can do it. So like, <laughs> even, I hope that they do, uh, or just quit and do it yourself. Forget the boss. That's even better. You mentioned your sailing adventure in the Atlantic. You have a great YouTube series. Uh, I've always been fascinated by sailing. I remember reading, I read a book years ago, you know, it was from like the 1910s of an Australian who just, he was the first guy to sail from the UK to New Zealand, I think. And he was just in like a little tiny sailboat and, you know, read tons of like these, you know, single person or small group sailing. How did you, you know, why that trip? And how, how do you fit that into your, you know, your busy life to take, I think it was four weeks or six weeks off you, you took to do that. Uh, the answer to how I fit it in is with great difficulty. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's it can be it can be damaging to your relationships to take that much time to go do something. And so um, I had to be very careful about the trade off between the amount of time I was spending away and the amount and the amount of uh, really how present and intentional I was when I was not on that trip, like trying to shore up and repair any damage I had done for being away for so long. Like most people who are into different types of adventure. I like trying a lot of different things. And I, and I started sailing in, in, in college uh, because there was like a, a sailing pavilion at my college and got really hooked on it. And then just over the years, I've always been in, involved in it. And then, uh, and then this year, I decided to sail a boat across, you know, across the Atlantic Ocean. I had actually ordered the boat before the pandemic, and then it took an extra year for them to build it because everything shut down. But yeah, that was like, that was the next big bucket lift trip. And now the next one after this is the Great Divide Trail the GMDBR, the, the one that goes from uh, Banff to Baja. Oh, the GDT. Yeah, that can be a real merciless, with forest fires and late snows and early snows. It's beautiful. I've done done sections of it because that's right near our house. But uh, uh, wow, that's exciting. Come to Canada, explore uh, the freezing uh, Canadian Rockies. Yeah, and if you, if you go when it's not freezing, then it's too hot by the time you get further south. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, trail. So this year would have been great. There was no forest fires, and we've had no snow here. We were in the middle of September, but it's been a really wet year out west. Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. Because yeah, it's like the last seven years. It's kind of been like you couldn't go hiking for the month of August. There were so many forest fires in the interior of BC and down in Idaho and Oregon. There's a the last chapter of the book in Oregon, uh, the last chapter of Hangry. I hit this horrible set of forest fires that um that were going to force me to go like an extra 500 miles out of the way when i was like 100 miles from the coast like i was so close and i was like how am i going to deal with this you can find out if you get the book but it was the whole state of oregon was on fire the the, the rerouting would have me go all the way up into washington it's it's really difficult to deal with that because then you've got all the smoke and there's such bad information about where you can go and where you can't go and all this stuff and uh, yeah, that's that can be really challenging. I didn't realize that that's a big problem on the GDT. Maybe I'll reconsider it. <laughs> it. 
it wasn't until it's just you know it's like um uh, i read books about the pacific crest trail and if you go back to the 80s there was like still like abundant you know forests and 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 woodlands and over the last 30 years lots of california the sierras have burned and so now you're kind of in burnt out areas or you know early early regrowth and uh, as it's getting hotter up here we're getting lots of lots of fires unfortunately again this year's been great next year could, could be smoky uh last question you know i know a few of their startup founders have told me they they like these podcasts as a startup founder myself what advice do you give to founders in terms of you know how to maybe how to be successful not just having a great company but be successful you know from a life perspective first step of being successful is defining a, having a personal definition of success that's explicit and unique you cannot be successful you cannot be successful as a place that you get to right and you cannot get there unless there's an actual place and society at large will will spoon feed you a definition of success the white picket fence and wealth and you know 2.4 kids and whatever the case may be right and Working towards someone else's definition of success or an implicit definition of success is incredibly harmful to individuals. And so the first step to being successful is defining what success is. And then the second step follows from that pretty, pretty obviously, which is um, being really honest with oneself about whether or not the activities on a day to day or year to year basis are actually getting you closer to that goal, to, to what that definition of success is. Uh, and if they're not, you really only have two options. One is to change your definition of success or to change your activities. Well, there's the third option, which is to keep beating your head against the wall and not make it any closer. I don't recommend that third option. And so, um, I mean, that, that's when, when people ask me how to be successful, it's, it's always starts with that. Like, what do you, how do you define successful? There are people who they want to acquire a lot of wealth and that is their goal. And, and if that's, if you're explicit about that and you're honest with yourself about that, more power to you. Great. Um, but most people actually don't uh, don't think that way. The dangerous thing about everything that I just said is that um, as you approach the accomplishment of a definition of success, it's no longer good enough. And I think that's actually the nature that's human nature. It's the cyclical nature of sort of the hero's journey, right? We're all the heroes of our own lives. And as you approach that goal, the goalposts move. Uh, and it's okay. Like, if you've already adopted this mentality of being explicit about what you want, it's fine that the goal, goal, goal posts move. And so um, that's usually what I say when people ask me, what, uh, you know, how, how do you go after success? Um, and that, that, that theme plays itself out again and again in the book in Hangry. Um, because, I, you know, I, I leave Grubhub uh, as I'm about to hit, you know, as I hit my goals. And, and even at the time at Grubhub, my goals changed a couple of times. And then my goal became to, to bike across the country. And even as I did that experience, you know, the initial, the initial part was I defined success as, am I going to have time of reflection? But the second half of the trip is about, can I deepen the relationships with the people that I met when I started this trip? Um, and so the, the ability to change one's goals, uh, is as much as, and change one's definition of success is as much a part of being successful, um, as, as being able to define that in the first place. You know, I, I love that answer because uh, it's not the answer you're going to get in business schools or for a lot of conventional wisdom. Uh, one of the books that changed my life was How Will You Measure Your Life by Clay Christensen, which is really figure out what's important to you and then do that. Don't you know, you said don't just accept society's view. And I think that's just such incredible advice. I didn't know it'd go there, but I'm, I'm really I'm really excited, uh, excited about that. I'm excited about your book because I'm on Amazon. 
the reviews are incredible. A page turner, uh, a rich account of how to build and not build a business empire, uh, one of the truest portrayals of startup life, and you mix that in with adventure and a great bike trip. Uh, Hangry comes out November 1st. I'm going to get it on my Kindle. Uh, it sounds like a great read. Mike, thanks for being uh, on the podcast. Uh, I love this. Just you know, talking to a startup founder who's been successful, who loves the outdoors, there's not a ton of us, so it's always fun <laughs> when I meet meet somebody else who kind of uh, shares the same ethos. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you having me on. And I'll put links to the to the book as well as the sailing YouTube series is really fun. Uh, I think there's there were six episodes and another episode, uh, kind of a, a supplement. Uh, it's just a fun way to look at like what 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 sailing is. Um, I'll put all those in the show notes. And with that, thanks for listening to this episode of the Ten Adventures Podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.